All right, uh, this part number two is going to be a little bit shorter, so you can uh, uh, relax uh, about that. But um, we're thinking about church discipline. I want to just think about what happens when we've, got to, we've gone through all this process and finally we have put them out of fellowship. And, and, and what now? How does, that, how does that work? And what does that look like? Um, well, first of all, uh, the, the putting away from the assembly is not done. The elders may guide the process, but just like reception, the whole assembly receives someone. Well, the whole assembly is involved in putting away. It's a, it's a corporate assembly action. And it tells us that we're to treat this person uh, like a, a, a publican and, and a sinner. Now, how would you treat a publican and a sinner? Well, you certainly wouldn't encourage them to remember the Lord with you, would you? So it means that they, you would withdraw the elements from them. Right? Because they're, they're out of fellowship. They're, 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 they've been spiritually out of fellowship for a long time. But we have now just made actual what has really been going on in their hearts for a long time. And, and so they can't remember the Lord. But can they come to the family Bible hour? Well, would you welcome an unbeliever to the Family Bible Hour? You would, wouldn't you? Well, you, they can come here. Because what do you want them to hear more than anything else in the world? God's Word, right? Just like you want an unbeliever to hear the Word of God because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Well, you also want that person to hear the Word of God. But in your personal relationship with them, it really helps me if I think of them in terms of a sinner and a publican. If an unbeliever comes here and I get into a conversation with them, you know what I want to talk to them about? The gospel, right? Because they're lost and they need to be saved. And so my, my message, I don't want to talk about other issues. I want to talk about the gospel. So if this person comes in, well, I want to talk to them about repentance as well. I don't want to talk about all the, the niceties of Scripture and all the fine kind of things we could talk about. No, there's one message they need to hear before we go anywhere else in our discussion. And that's the message of repentance. And so, just like the, the unbeliever, no point going into all the other details of Scripture. They need to, unless they get the first thing first, they'll never get the rest, right? Unless they're born again, the rest of it will be nonsense to them. won't make any sense. And so our, our whole purpose of an unbeliever is get them the gospel. Our whole purpose of somebody who is an unrepentant uh, person who's out of fellowship is to bring them to that place of brokenness and repentance. And so what we do is we confront them with a need of repentance. Also, it says very clearly, uh, verse 11, but now I have, this is 1 Corinthians 5 verse 11, now I have written unto you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner with such an one, know not to eat. So the idea is that you're not treating him like you did before. Now, of course, the difficulty is, if you're in an assembly that's inhospitable, and you're not having people around anyway, it won't make any difference to him. That's why hospitality is a very important part of assembly life. Because you want this guy to feel the pain of being absent from all the joys and privileges that he once had. So maybe that's a challenge to us even this evening. You know, if we put somebody out of fellowship, would they even feel the pain? Or, or, or are, we, are we inhospitable? 
but the idea is you don't want to eat with him. You don't want to treat him like you did before. Uh, you just, it, it's kind of like we can't, we can't just go with you anymore because we're not on the same page anymore. Till you repent, this relationship's not the same. And, and, and of course, why do we do that? Are we just being mean? Are we just being, no, we love the guy. Nothing that we would be thrilled with more than to see this guy repentant, restored, and back in fellowship with us. We long for that. But we realize that the only alternative left to us scripturally now is to treat him this way with the view that he might come to repentance. Now what about the elders and their role? Well, they they still are responsible to visit him, but not in the capacity of previous visits, which would be, you know, the, the comfort in him or, or to encourage him or whatever regular visitation. No, it's again, it's this visiting him with a view of bringing before him the need of his repentance. We, we just adopt a one-track mind. Till you repent, this is the subject on the table and we're not talking about anything else. This is it. And uh, eventually, we trust that the Lord will break him down and bring him to that place. And of course, we, we do need to go to him as elders, even though he's out of fellowship, with this message of of restoration, you know, need for repentance and restoration, because there's so many scriptures that talk about the good shepherd and what he does with the sheep that went astray. What does he do? He goes after him. Woe to the shepherds of Israel, Ezekiel 34. Why? Because they did not bring back that which was driven away. Okay? So there's got to be attempts made but always with a view, we're not lowering the bar, we're not lowering the standard, we want you back, we'd love you back, but the sin must be repented of in order to receive you back. What, what about that repentance? Um, how, how is it to be seen? Well, there's a kind of helpful rule, and that is this, public sin requires public repentance. Private sin, private repentance. In other words, if it's something that is obvious to everybody, in other words, this guy's been involved in an open, flagrant affair, everybody knows about it, then everybody needs to hear from his lips, I sinned, please forgive me, I have broken off the relationship, I want to come back to fellowship. They need to hear that. It needs to be public. If it's something that was done privately... And, and, and only the elders were involved in it. We don't need to air everybody's dirty laundry publicly in the meetings. Now, something that's been going on privately, we don't know all the details, but we trust the elders that they've been on the case here, and they, they are saying, we, this man is involved in sin, we, we, we don't want to go into details, because we don't want to know all everybody's dirty laundry, do we? It can all be done privately, and it can be said, now the brother has repented, we're going to receive him back into the assembly. But I think that's a good rule. Public sin, public repentance, private sin, private repentance. And I think that can be very helpful to us. <clears throat> when, when this person is put out of fellowship, one of the things that happens to him is that he loses, as it were, the protection of being under the authority of the local assembly. He's put out into Satan's domain for the destruction of the flesh 1 Corinthians 5, 5 says and there's, there's two views on that one is that it's to do with the carnal nature 
And the idea is this is, is fellowship uh, is out in the world and away from fellowship with the Lord and with other believers. And he might realize as he's out in that sphere that the reason that, that he's in that predicament is because his carnal nature, his flesh, has dominated his life. He's living in the flesh. And he may come to that place where he is ready to put to death the deeds of the flesh. And so the idea of the carnal nature view is that he gets to that place where he just says, this is what it is, uh, enough's enough, and I'm going to deal with that. The other view is that it speaks of the destruction of the body. And of course, we have uh, definite uh, grounds for that, don't we? 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 30, many were weak and sickly and some were asleep. Divine chastening Somebody's testimony is so bad that the Lord, for that person's own benefit, might choose to call them home early. I've seen that happen once, where everybody concerned, without any question, knew this was divine chastening. And it was a man who had divided an assembly on multiple occasions. Every time the assembly would build up, he would do his thing again, and it would just cause devastation. And, uh, and uh, eventually, uh, this man was building a brick wall. And one brick fell out of the wall, hit him in the middle of the forehead, and killed him dead. And I don't think there was a single person that didn't doubt what was behind that. I don't want that to happen to anybody. You see how serious it is to to be serious about sin we don't want that to happen to anybody here but God is serious about holiness he really is and he's particularly serious about holiness belonging to his house and we're supposed to be a holy priesthood right every believer a holy priesthood and we're to be holy as he is holy and so holiness is very important. So, so here's the scenario. This man is, is, uh, or, or, or sister, they're put out of fellowship. They're, they're now out from the protection of the assembly. They're in Satan's domain. Uh, the possibility of the destruction of the flesh is out there. Uh, they're, they're, they're just in a, a very difficult place, not uh, being embraced by the saints. And so they come to that place of repentance. Now look at 2 Corinthians and chapter 2, and let's just look at what happens. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 5. But if any have caused grief, he hath not grieved me, but in part, that I may not overcharge you all. Sufficient to such a man is this punishment, which was inflicted of many. Okay, did you get that? It was the, the punishment, the putting away, was inflicted of many. It was, it was an assembly action. It wasn't done by the elders, but the whole assembly. And, and so that contrarywise, you ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such an one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Wherefore, I beseech you that you would confirm your love toward him. For to this end also did I write that I might know the proof of you, whether you be obedient in all things. 
To whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgive anything, to whom I forgive it, for your sakes forgive I in the person of Christ. Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we're not ignorant of his devices. And so the idea is this, that we've gone through this process, the man has come to repentance, and, and they, they, were, they were dragging their heels, putting him out, and now they're dragging their heels, bringing him back. And Paul says, you're going to destroy the guy. He, he's, he's overwhelmed with sorrow. Confirm your love to him. Receive him back and, and confirm your love. And, and so we need to be vigilant in practicing discipline, but also vigilant in receiving the repentant brother back. Now we have to recognize that there may be a rece receiving back to the assembly, but there may be some limitations. Okay, Say this guy was very much involved in public ministry, or maybe he was a children's worker, and he was involved in something sexually in either of those spheres. You don't put him back in a Sunday school class if he's got a problem in that area. In fact, you keep him away from children, right? So he's welcome back, but there's limits, right? His sin has limited his usefulness. Uh, he's had a very public sin, You'd be pretty slow in letting him back on the platform. Now, I'm not saying you don't ever do it. You, you see, the kind of interesting thing is that, that sometimes the people that we learn the most from are the people who have failed the hardest. Isn't that true? Like, who do you learn church uh, child discipline from? Solomon, right? How did he deal with his kids? He's telling you what he should have done. That's what he's telling you. He was a disaster as a father. And his kids didn't turn out right well at all. But what he did was, he said, this is what I should have done. This is, what, this is how it should be done. And we listen to that. You listen to a guy who's failed in his marriage, and he may tell you how to do it right. Why? Because he's learned the hard way how to do it wrong. And he may be able to give you some great instructions on how to be a good husband. <laughs> because he's saying, this is what I didn't do. And so we do learn from people's failures, don't we? Uh, what about Peter? Did he fail? I think he did, didn't he? Didn't that guy swear? I think he did, didn't he? I think I heard it somewhere. Did he? Yeah, he, he denied the Lord with oaths and curses. So is that it? You're done, Peter, forget it. No, the Lord restored Peter. And he says, feed my sheep, tend my lambs. Isn't that interesting? How, how could he do that to such a man? I'll tell you why. Because he'd be a very compassionate shepherd having failed, wouldn't he? A shepherd who has never failed is probably not a very patient shepherd. Thankfully, most shepherds have failed. <laughs> right? As individuals. Probably and as shepherds. But, but failure, thank God, in Scripture... Failure doesn't have to be final. So this message may seem really negative to you, but actually it's quite a positive message. And the positive message is this. Failure doesn't have to be final in the things of God. And, and, and uh, we've already said, a broken and a contrite spirit, God just can't resist that. And, and if you, uh, through failure, are brought to repentance and brokenness, God could use you even more mightily than He ever did before. 
because you experience the grace of God in such a marvelous way. And, and, and maybe that would help you in many ways. So uh, let's think about the, the people of church discipline. Uh, we've already stressed this about the whole church being involved in both reception and discipline. Look at Matthew 18. We haven't uh, looked at this passage much in the process, but I want us to just do that uh, now uh, for a moment. Matthew 18. It says, verse 15, Moreover, if the brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and as a publican. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you that if two of you shall agree on earth touching anything that you shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Now we, we love that scripture and we like to use it in a very particular context. But the context actually is church discipline. Now, it's not, it can be wider than that, but it is. And the idea is that, that when we discipline somebody, we're come together in his name, right? And it's, that's the authority we're doing it in. And he's promising, I am with you. In the midst of that action, I am right with you. In other words, what decisions are made here on earth are binding in heaven. Right? In other words, this, this is not a social club. This is the house of God. It's the church of the living God. And the head of the church is the Lord Jesus. And when we take this kind of action, the Lord Himself says, I'm with you in that action. Why? Because He loves that brother more than any of us. And He longs to see him brought to repentance. And He's saying, I support this decision. I am with you in this decision because I love that soul. And so uh, we're all acting together, but, but the Lord is acting with us in the process. The whole church is involved. Look again at First Timothy. And by the way, we, we also need to say that the same process that we have here uh, for people in the assembly can also equally uh, work for somebody who's an elder. In other words, what if it's the elder that gets into sin? Same process. Um, verse 19, Against an elder receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. So in other words, what the elder's done, everybody knows it. It's kind of open knowledge. There's other witnesses to be brought. Them that sin, speaking of elders, rebuke before all, that others also may fear. I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that thou observe these things without preferring one before another, doing nothing by partiality. And so this charge about this issue of disciplining an elder, I want you to notice that who's involved here? Before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels. You get, you think this is serious? This is really serious, isn't it? In other words, he's calling divine persons and elect angels 
to be involved in the whole process. And sometimes we forget this. We, we just kind of see us. But there's more than us here. Even tonight, there's more than just us here. The Lord's here. The angels are watching. One of these days, I often say this to my kids. I say, we're going to get to see this in full color one day. Right now, we're seeing it in black and white. But the day is coming that we'll see some of these meetings that we've been involved in. There's been all kinds of stuff going on in heavenly places. Angelic beings looking in. Uh, uh, maybe wicked forces trying to disrupt. And, and, and w- there's, there's stuff going on here that we can't see with our physical eyes. But I want to tell you, they're just as real as this podium is. And when discipline takes place, divine personages are involved in the process. <laughs> and so we better realize this is very serious. So we receive them back after repentance. We confirm our love to them. And then let's just kind of finish tonight where we started. And that is, we started this process by saying, we wouldn't have to do church discipline if we were disciplined. If if we were faithful in disciplining our children, part of the process of disciplining your children is so that they don't have to face divine discipline. Right? And, and so if we were faithful in doing that, that would eliminate a lot of problems. Our kids would grow up well-balanced, well-disciplined individuals, and they wouldn't have a lot of problems. Self-discipline. If we were self-disciplined with the use of our time, we might not get into as much trouble as we get into. into right? Be careful, little eyes. What you see, do you remember that little song? Kids song? It's not a kids song. I'll tell you, it's a good adult song. Be careful, big eyes, what you see. Because the Father up above is looking down in love. And so if I'm disciplined about what I feed my mind on, and what I allow my eyes to see, maybe that will be a big preventative so that I don't have to be disciplined by the assembly or by God. Maybe if I was a true disciple, because the word disciple and discipline seems to kind of go together, don't they? And was serious about following the Lord and walking in obedience to His Word as He shows me stuff, I just act on it and just get on with it and stop making excuses and just got serious. Maybe then I wouldn't need to be disciplined by the church or by God. Maybe if I was humble enough to accept the admonition of the saints when they come to me in love and say, Mike, can I have a word with you? I love you, brother, but I've observed this trait in your life and I'm concerned about it. And instead of defending myself, instead of getting on my high horses and saying, well, brother, I've got a few things to say to you, but instead receiving it with meekness as a word from the Lord, and acting on it, I wouldn't need church discipline. My prayer, really, for this assembly is that you won't need it because you will be self-disciplined, because you will be true disciples of the Lord Jesus, because you will be serious about sin and holiness. <clears throat> what about your Bible reading? Are you in the book? Remember what D.L. Moody used to say? 
Sin will keep me from this book and this book will keep me from sin. That's a wise word, wasn't it, from D.L. Moody. Are you in the book? Are you consistently in the book? How much time do you spend in the book in proportion to other activities? For instance, young people, how much time do you spend listening to your iPod, especially not messages from Voices for Christ, I mean just music, as opposed to how much time you spend in the Word? All the folks, how much time do you spend watching Fox News as opposed to reading the good news? Or listening to talk radio instead of letting the book talk to your heart? See? Discipline. Uh, I'd intended, <laughs> if I had more time, in my second session, which has now just gone, to speak about the disciplines of the Christian life. Because I'm convinced that a disciplined Christian life won't require divine discipline. I'm convinced of it. So my challenge to all of us, and remember we said this on the Lord's Day, we said, you know, what would be really good is if we all got along with God. I know we're busy, but we can find time. And just kind of laid ourselves bare in the presence of God. You know, I mean, you can't hide anything from Him anyway. And just said, Lord, we've just been singing it, right? How many times do we sing stuff and never really think about what we're singing. Search me, O God. Know my heart today. Try me and see if there be any wicked way in me. And if there is, repent before the Lord of your sin so that it never has to become an issue the elders have to deal with. And they'll be happy because they don't want to do this. <laughs> they will do it because they want to be faithful to the word of God, but they don't want to do it and listen to them when they admonish you. When they, when they stand here and say, Brethren, we've got to, you know, we're getting slack in this area. They don't, they don't want to be doing that. They'd much rather talk about, you know, the loveliness of the Lord or something like that. But, but sometimes they have to admonish you. Why? Because there's a day coming that they will have to give an account for your souls. They're accountable for you. And they're going to give an account to the chief shepherd. But you're accountable too. Because you're going to one day stand before the Lord Jesus. And you're going to give an account for your life. Things done in the body, whether good or worthless. So I just urge you to get serious. You know, I, I, every day I look at the, the news headlines and I wonder, Oh Lord Jesus, how long, how long? Before we shout the glad song. Hallelujah, Christ returneth. And I, I suspect that it can't be much longer before Christ comes. Which means our opportunity to live for Him is now. It really is. I'll tell you one story, then I'll close in prayer. There's a brother in an assembly that I used to be in fellowship in. This brother built up a really nice library of good Christian books. And he had in his back of his mind that when he retired... He was really going to devote himself to studying the scriptures. Before his retirement, he had a stroke. He went blind in one eye, and the other eye was bad anyway. And so he's got this library, and he can't see it. He's preaching. He's a man of one message. You know what he does? He goes and gets young men, and he says to them, Serve the Lord now. Because... Like you, I had good intentions. 
but they were never realized. And I'll tell you, he gives that message with real urgency. Fervency. He, he just grabs him by the collar and he'll say, Young man, serve God now! Because his chance is gone. And can I just, as it were, get you by the collar tonight and shake you and say, In the name of the Lord Jesus, serve the Lord now. Because you're not guaranteed tomorrow. Get serious about holiness now. Because I don't want you to be ashamed before him at his coming. Can you imagine looking at some filth on the internet one second and then being caught up and looking into the eyes of Jesus the next second? Because some believer will have that experience one day. That's how serious this stuff is, isn't it? I don't want you to be ashamed before him at his coming. Let's pray. Father, we just ask that you'd use your word. In all of our hearts, we pray, Father, for a tenderness and a love for your people, for a hatred of sin and a love of righteousness. We think of thy beloved Son, the Lord Jesus. It says of him that he he loved righteousness and he hated iniquity. That's why we find it so amazing that that one that loved the righteousness so much and hated iniquity would be the one that would have the iniquity of us all placed upon him. No wonder there was that shrinking away in Gethsemane. And yet, Father, we're thankful that the Lord Jesus said, not my will, but thine be done. And we're thankful that he endured the cross, despising the shame. Thankful that we have a compassionate and faithful high priest that ever lives to make intercession for us. And Father, we would pray for this assembly that it would be an assembly that would be known for holiness and purity. It would be an assembly that would be known for faithfulness to the Word of God, for fervent love amongst the brethren, and that it might be a place where Thy Word and Thy Son is honored greatly in the lives of every saint. And we'll give Thee the glory. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.